Hello, friend. Thank you for downloading The Tully Show, as always. Thank you in particular at the moment for your patience and keeping tabs of when I post new shows. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's been a pretty erratic posting schedule for The Tully Show for a number of reasons I don't need to bore you with. I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to share this episode with you with political journalist and sometimes operative David Sirota. I'm very grateful that people like him are occasionally willing to share their time with me and with you. And I want to remind you that I'm hopeful there will be a new Tully show just about every week moving forward. But for the weeks there aren't, and for the weeks there are, there is always my Patreon. I'm still, I don't need guests there, and I don't need quite as much technology to cooperate over there to do stuff myself. So I'm still averaging just about two new podcasts, sometimes even more, per week. So sorry if I don't always get you a Tully show every week, but there's definitely plenty of stuff waiting for you at patreon.com slash Mike. Tully, hope to see you there. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a political journalist who is founder and editor of the subscriber-supported online news outlet, The Daily Poster, a senior advisor and speechwriter for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign and author of several books, including 2011's Back to Our Future, How the 1980s Explains the World We Live in Now, Our Culture, Our Politics, Our Everything. That was a long one. Hello and welcome, David Sirota. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, first of all, for answering my email and agreeing to uh, indulge me and talk, sure. at, at least in part, about a book that is at least 10 years old. Um, intellectualizing pop culture is absolutely my sweet spot, so I, I, I could not resist reaching out. But I do, And I do want to talk to you about the book, but I have many questions um, about the more contemporary issues you are covering on The Daily Poster and elsewhere. And congratulations, by the way, I gather today The Daily Poster has moved to uh, a new home that I gather is this the harbinger of a brighter future. Yes, yes. We have just launched our new website. It's part of our big expansion plan. We've had such subscriber growth that we are able to start hopefully hiring more journalists to do more reporting, hold more politicians accountable and have more politicians be mad at us. That's the idea, right? Well, I'm really, really glad. As somebody who's just sort of transitioning out, I was working for SiriusXM less than a year ago, and now I'm in the Patreon and podcasting world. So I, I, I understand where, where you are, and I'm very, very happy to hear that um, there is an audience. I'm, I'm happy to know that there's an audience for that, and I'm happy to know that you are finding, personally, an audience Thanks. for that Appreciate as well. It. So here's the way I want to talk about a bunch of things. I found myself arriving at the same place over and over in thinking of issues I wanted to run past you. I am the sort of person who can often find myself paralyzed by seeing both sides of an issue. And in thinking about the stuff I wanted to talk to you about, I realized that in many cases, I hold two diametrically opposed views on the issue at the same time. I was hoping if I shared some of those pairs of opposing views with you, you could give me your perspective in how Great. you personally untangle and resolve them. First of all, independent news media. This is obviously a subject that is near and dear to your heart. On one hand, I wholeheartedly believe corporate media is at best mostly useless and at worst pure evil. I can barely take someone's opinion seriously if they're getting the bulk of their information from Fox or CNN. That having been said, I believe mass media has always been biased, has always been interest-driven. I believe William Randolph Hearst single-handedly started a war through his papers. He started a war that he wanted to start. I also believe that losing, for all of its faults, the oligarchic media landscape we've known is bound to lead to a further siloing of the echo chambers and a further erosion of not just opinion, but the agreed-upon sets of facts that we discuss in a world where we already have a significant percentage of the electorate believing the bald-faced lie that the last election was stolen, how do you personally reconcile all of the above? It's a great question. Uh, I agree with basically everything you just said, uh, that yes, corporate media uh, is, represents 
typically a corporate perspective uh, that uh, that corporate media has been a corporate aristocratic elitist establishment voice uh, for the history of corporate media's existence. Uh, and yes, uh, the disruption of our mass media system threatens to create different information ecosystems, none of which necessarily agree on an accepted stipulated foundation of facts. Uh, this is an oversimplification, but it, it, in some ways it used to be that you had fewer media outlets. We went through an era, really, of fewer media outlets controlled by fewer and fewer people. Uh, but in theory, at minimum, there was an accepted basis of a, an accepted set of facts that we could agree on. And then we could have our political arguments about what those facts meant. I certainly think we're in an era now where, in a lot of ways, the information back and forth is debating whether even to stipulate that certain facts are indeed facts. And that is really, really dangerous. Obviously, climate change is the easiest example of that, where, where it, there has been an era defined by, is climate change happening? Is it real? Is it human created? And, and instead of arguing about what to do about it, what the most effective strategy to do to, to, to deal with it is, there's a lot of that has been just, are, are we even going to accept that, it, that it's happening? Uh, and that's really dangerous. And it becomes more dangerous when people exist in hermetically sealed bubbles of information of, the, of information that's divorced from facts and can't even relate or can't even have a, a debate, an informed debate about those facts because the facts are not stipulated. All of that is true. But what I take some solace in and feel somewhat optimistic about is that the era of oligopolistic media was not always the uh, was not always uh, an era that dominated America. That if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, the so-called penny press, where there were a much more uh, smaller and medium-sized media outlets, a kind of cacophony of voices. Uh, prior to the era of the big daily newspaper, one or two of them dominating entire cities. Arguably, that was a more small d, democratically vibrant information ecosystem. It wasn't perfect. I mean, they had their problems too. I mean, you know, kind of tabloid news and sensationalist news. Uh, that, that was, you know, that's been a problem as long as there's, there's really been news. But my argument would be that if you force me to choose between kind of the pinnacle of the of the uh, end of the 20th century, where you had a, a handful of broadcast news uh, uh, TV channels on you know analog non-cable TV, uh, and most major cities dominated only by one or two newspapers and uh, one or two major media, uh, major radio conglomerates. If you force me to choose between that and an information ecosystem where there's lots and lots of little and medium-sized media outlets competing with each other, I would choose the latter. I would choose lots of smaller and medium-sized media outlets competing with each other because I don't think there's a a silver bullet solution to this fact question other than it's if you in theory if you have lots and lots of voices uh, arguing over things scrutinizing the content of each other then there's a better chance you're going to get uh, to the truth and there's a better chance frankly that truths which are inconvenient to corporate power will actually be discussed and litigated that's better than a situation where you have a handful of oligarchs deciding what even gets to be discussed and what doesn't get to be discussed. Uh, I, I just think, I, you know, if you want to argue that the kind of oligarchic, oligopolistic media environment will do a better job of at least getting us to stipulate facts, I'm, I'm not even necessarily sure that's true because you're not just going to be able to just shut down the internet. Uh, people are going to, uh, th there's going to be conspiracy theories. Uh, there's going to be uh, people hostile to facts uh, no matter what. So I would rather have 
uh, a diversified media environment. It's kind of like, a, maybe it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's kind of like how a, a safer investing strategy in theory is if you diversify your portfolio. You know, one particular uh, stock in a diversified portfolio isn't going to, in theory, take down your entire portfolio. Whereas if you have all your money in two, three, four stocks, uh, you could be betting on a company that's betting on something completely wrong and you could really lose your shirt uh, in, in a market crash and, and the like. So all of that's to say is that I'm actually somewhat optimistic that in the disruption that we've seen in major oligopolistic media, and, and let's be clear, oligopolistic media still exists very much, right? I mean, we at the Daily Poster, we're, we're grassroots funded, uh, we're breaking stories, we're making impact, but we're, we're not Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. We're not the New York Times. We just, we're just not you know, that large. But I think if you look ahead you know, 5, 10, 15 years, if we see a situation in which more people are getting more of their news from varied sources, small and medium, uh, and not only getting essentially their brains programmed by one or two or three corporate media outlets. My view is, is that that will lead uh, to, it's not going to be perfect. There are going to be problems, but that will lead to better outcomes. And the last thing I'll say on this is to, to butcher a, a quote from, 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 I think it was Winston Churchill, you know, it's like the quote about democracy, you know, uh, democracy is the worst form of government other than all the other forms of government, which is to say that the vision that I'm laying out is a more small D democratic media environment, uh, which is, you know, it's going to have lots of problems, going to be far from perfect, going to have all, all sorts of, 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 of complications. But I, I would argue that's the best kind of media uh, and that we have to Ultimately, the, the most radical aspect of a democracy is that it is predicated on trusting the people to eventually make the right decisions. Yeah, well said, and, and also well said in pointing out the cat's out of the bag. If it's not the Daily Poster, it's some crazy person on YouTube. So it doesn't, it's not as if we really have a, a, a choice here in, in any event. Um, as we segue into some more potentially uh, partisan subjects, Help me and everyone else understand the perspective you are coming from. I think it's helpful to everyone to just know, you know, put your cards on the table. You worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign. You've known him for a long time. That tells us a lot. Let me ask you this. If Bernie having been elected would have been a 10 out of 10 in your book and Trump having been reelected would have been, say, a zero or a one in your book, where was Biden winning on the scale for you of one to 10 back in November? And has that number changed at all for you since then? That's a good question too. I mean, I, I think that um, I think that Joe Biden was obviously not my first choice. Uh, I think that Joe Biden. The one thing I had a feeling about with Joe Biden was that Joe Biden uh, doesn't have strong uh, ideological moorings. Uh, I would, in some ways, argue he does not have strong uh, policy-based moorings. Uh, that if you that Joe Biden's skill has been to try to be uh, at the center of what is considered in vogue in the Democratic Party in any given era. And there's a problem with that, but there's also can be benefits of that. The problem with that in the um, in the 1990s was that Joe Biden, this the what was in vogue as a Democrat in the 1990s was to be a Democrat who punched the left wing of the party. That was what was considered cool. Uh, that was what was considered the, the, to, to, to be a serious Democratic senator. I'm putting that in quotes is you would uh, you would position yourself as wanting to work with Republicans and not just wanting to work with them, but agreeing with them on things, uh, saying, I, look, I'm not a liberal. I want to cut entitlements, quote unquote, entitlements, Social Security and the like. That was what got you lauded. That was what got you cachet in the mid 1990s into the 2000s, really. And that's who Joe Biden was. Now, if Joe Biden was ideological and actually believed in that stuff, and it's not to absolve him for his behavior in supporting that, I'm not. Like, to, to me, I don't actually, in some ways, I, in a lot of ways, I don't care what's in a politician's so I don't care what they actually believe. The only thing I care about is, you know, what they do. 
right? So it's not to absolve him for supporting the crime bill or pushing to cut Social Security or pushing the Iraq war. It's only to say that I'm not, I don't know how deeply held those beliefs actually were, even he was as he was doing terrible, awful things. And the benefit of them ne not necessarily being deeply held beliefs is that what is in vogue to be a democratic politician has changed. And it has changed because lots and lots of people who aren't politicians have been doing the hard work of changing the conversation, changing the debate, doing or organizing in their communities. And so Joe Biden in the position that he's in, if his skill is knowing where the center of the Democratic Party is, thumb in the wind, knowing what's in vogue, what's in vogue has changed and he has recognized that. So credit to Joe Biden for at least recognizing that. Uh, and, but really, credit to all the work that has been done to change the terms of the debate. Now, some of the change of the debate wasn't because of the, the political organizing that was done. It was because reality changed. I mean, just, you know, there, there's in theory, there's there's only so long that the working class can get a boot kicked in its face before people start voting differently and, and people start supporting better policies. And I think in theory, we are getting to that, to that point. So when you ask me to rank, like, you know, which, where was Joe Biden on a scale of, you know, one to 10 or Bernie Sanders, you know, my view is, and I said this, I believe this from the beginning, which is that ultimately if you get a president who's willing to reflect what the public, the, 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 the vast public, the mass public, the base of the Democratic Party actually wants, then I don't care if they're charismatic. I don't care if they're, you know, you know, in, in certain ways, I don't care where they even were in the past, even though obviously in the campaign, I worked to spotlight Joe Biden's terrible record. And I'm thankful that he has, I mean, frankly, he has disavowed uh, large parts of his terrible record. And you know what? That doesn't mean I like forgive Joe Biden. That does, I mean, he, you know, he was the guy who passed the bankruptcy bill, one of the worst bills in, in, in really the modern history of this country. doesn't mean like, uh, you know, he, he, he gets a pass on that. It's only to say that we live in the present. And if he's moving in the right direction on a lot of issues, uh, that that's great. I guess my, the last thing I will say on this is that I just don't tend to align my own political engagement with individual politicians. I think there's a problem in this country where we view politicians as players uh, in a, a professional sporting game, uh, that politics has become sort of ESPNized and like, oh, I love Joe Biden and, or I hate Joe Biden or I love Bernie or I hate, I hate Bernie. And, and, you know, they're on my, like, whatever they do is good. And whatever the other team does is bad. And, you know, it's like, that's, that's just, I mean, that's not how I look at this. Like I look at the, these are people who either they're delivering uh, for what people want or they're not. And my own personal views on whether they're nice, whether they're not nice, whether they're good people, whether they've got good values or not. It's just that is not relevant to my life. And frankly, it's not relevant to almost everyone's li lives other than the people who are like in their families. Right. And, and I think I want people to focus in on what are these people doing for us, regardless of whether they're cool, nice, mean, nasty. What, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is what these people do with their power. Yeah, that's right. The sports comparison is made all the time. I would argue it's actually worse than the way that we regard sports. I, know, I can tell you're a sports guy from reading your book. Nobody name drops Horace Grant quite that readily without knowing what they're what they're <laughs> talking about. I've rooted for many teams while talking about how horrible their manager was or when are we going to get rid of this general manager. So people are actually far, far, far more critical of the the jersey that they root for running around in the field than they are of their politicians, which is... A phenomenon, frankly, I would like to see somebody explore and explain to me because I can't wrap my head around it. We all know it's the case and it's become so normal that we don't question it. Well, obviously you do, but it is it is a weird phenomenon. Well, I think I think people ascribe their values to politicians and they ascribe good versus evil narratives mm -hmm. to the political conversation. And look, in, in some ways, good versus evil is what we're what we're dealing with in a macro sense there. I mean, there are. There are corporate interests that are doing bad things, uh, and there are objectively good things that need to happen that often don't happen. My point is only don't affiliate good and bad with 
individual personalities or lawmakers. Uh, some lawmakers are really good on some issues and then terrible on other issues. Other lawmakers, I mean, right? It's it's not about the person. It's it's so like the thing that I actually appreciate about the Biden presidency, uh, and and I was actually excited about was that I had said at one point uh, to somebody right after the election, you know, this is the first time in my lifetime I can remember where there is a um, relatively not charismatic president who does not have a worshipful following, uh, who is not considered a kind of media star, democratic. Uh, you know, Clinton and Obama were considered sort of these semi-celebrity presidents. Uh, uh, and people in them being celebrities ascribed these like sort of felt this personal affinity to them. But I said, this is the first time we're going to have more of a machine politician, a lower profile machine politician, coalition politician who doesn't necessarily have much ideology in the presidency at a time that you have a slightly more strengthened and vibrant progressive movement, uh, certainly than it's been uh, in the last 40 years, I, I, I would argue, uh, maybe not going back you know, to the New Deal. But this is the first time we're going to have that convergence where the personality of Joe Biden, I would argue, is not going to, to be as powerful in distracting people from the causes and the policies that need to be dealt with, which another way to put it is that people's personal affinity for Joe Biden is less likely to interrupt their desire for actual policy change uh, and their means to get actual policy change because of a stronger uh, political movement than there has been in a while, uh, because Joe Biden doesn't engender such that sort of media-driven, uh, personality-based, individualized affinity. And I think that's a good thing, right? The president is not a monarch. The president is not some god. The president, you know, I would argue the, the most healthy way to look at a president is the president's basically like the, you know, the administrator of a bureaucracy, the principal of a school, right? I mean, like they're running a giant kind of like not a business, but a, a giant bureaucracy. They're an administrator and we should see them as that for good and for bad. Right. It's 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 a much less glamorous view. It's a much more utilitarian view of what politicians are supposed to be doing. Yeah, no, you make a, a good point. Obviously, it was out there that if Trump did something, well, if you supported him, it must be, even if I don't understand it, or boy, that doesn't seem like what I would expect him to do, it must be fine because I think Trump knows what he's doing, or it must be evil because, uh, you know, Trump is evil, and I definitely, looking back, feel guilty of... See, I was thinking about this exact subject in, in reading your book where you were talking about people going to Obama rallies and saying, I love him, without being able to as describe one of his policy positions, and then people feeling the exact same way about Sarah Palin. Okay, this is a little bit out there, but follow me. Supposedly did a survey one time where they asked a bunch of college kids after their first day of class with a professor to rate their professors. And then at the end of the term, they asked them to rate them again. And it turned out that the students' gut reactions about the people had been pretty uncannily borne out through the experience of really spending time with them. I think I... I do regret giving Obama a pass and saying he must know what he's doing, for example, as nobody was going to jail for the Wall Street thing. But I can put myself in the shoes because I was one of them of people saying, I don't understand. This is complex stuff. I don't understand what should be done about the problems the government faces. But I look at Obama and I see a guy that I think thinks the way that I think and I trust to approach problems the way I would want them approached. And for better, let's face it, I think mostly for worse, people looked at Sarah Palin and saw the same thing. And that is fairly understandable when you put it in those terms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the same idea that George W. Bush, people said they, they thought they could have a beer with him. Exactly. I mean, I think it's the, look, politics is inherently personal. So I, so it's not to say that, uh, it's not to say that I don't understand why people have these feelings. I mean, it, politics is an inherently human endeavor, you know, uh, politics is inherently personal, but my, but my, my point is, is that it's a healthier attitude to try to be mindful of that and to and to cognitively tell yourself listen i don't care how much i may like that guy i don't care how good a guy that that person is or bad a person person that that you know interpersonally that person seems to be 
the, this person is either delivering for us or not delivering for us. And, and this is a really important point. And I don't trust my value judgments on their intangible personality, personality qualities as, uh, as a guidepost for whether what they're doing is good, is actually good on the, on the merits or bad. In other words, Barack Obama may be a super pleasant guy, maybe a super smart guy, uh, may, may come off as a guy with, with good values, good family values. I stipulate all of that. Somebody like that can still do a hell of a lot of damage by not doing what needs to be done after the financial crisis to the people who destroyed the global economy. Uh, and, th and that, frankly, is the danger of politics. And, and obviously, Trump is an even worse is, a, is, a, is an even worse example of that. A guy who, I mean, I obviously can't stand Donald Trump. Find him gross and disgusting, and and just you know morally bad and and policy wise awful. But to some people, you know, Donald Trump uh, berating the establishment, the elites. I mean, everyone, a lot of people forget. I mean, he ran as a, a populist. I mean, it was a joke. It was like, I mean, it was fraudulent obviously but he's got, he's got a golden toilet but yes right yeah, it's ridiculous yeah. right but i mean you can actually what's amazing is you can actually compare the speeches obama was giving in 2008 during the financial crisis we're going to crack down on wall street etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can compare them to donald trump's speeches at the end of 2016 they were almost saying the exact same thing and by the way the fact that donald trump could be saying that in 16 and it have agency and relevance is a commentary on what wasn't done to wall street and the financial elites in the in, in the intervening eight years, but Trump could do that, and people could hear it, and conservatives who liked his bluster, who liked his personality, could not actually could could, could sort of not be tricked, but could sort of in their minds not think about the fact that Donald Trump is a shady business guy with a golden toilet, and this is ridiculous, because they liked. All of the intangibles, you know, they liked his bluster. They liked his, his charisma, his charisma, I'm putting that in quotes. You know, they liked what, what he was sort of saying. And so it, my point is on like on all sides, it's like the key here is to look at these politicians and what they're actually proposing, what they've actually done in the past uh, and think about what you actually want from them. Because Barack Obama, I'll use him as another, again, go back to him, may have given great speeches, maybe, you know, a, a, a decent guy, a great guy, whatever you want to call him. Like the things that he didn't do and some of the things that he did do that were really, you know, genuinely bad, I, like those two things can be true at the same time. He can be a decent, nice man with good family values who did a lot of things to screw over a lot of people. And if you ask me to rerun the tape, I would take a president who wasn't a particularly nice guy, maybe doesn't have like great interpersonal family values, who actually delivered a lot for, you know, people who need it and, and delivered a lot to protect uh, and, and build an economy and an, and an environment that will support, you know, when it comes to climate change, life on earth for my children. I want to ask you about minimum wage. Once again, I hold two opinions, I think, that uh, don't really go together with one another. I think I believe the all the following things are true. I believe, especially given the vast wealth, the, the GDP of America, that with very limited exceptions, a person who works 40 hours a week should make enough money to keep a roof over their head. I also believe that a person, and I've spoken to some of these people personally, who has acquired a specialized skill or trade can reasonably expect to make a little bit more than a person who works at McDonald's. I also believe that in a perfect world, a person who enters a field with a college degree that is actually applicable to something in the job market quite rightly expects to make more than many tradesmen. Despite having a fairly primitive understanding of economics, I'm led to believe that if everybody makes more money, then effectively nobody makes more money. So how do we raise the minimum? How do we get a living standard out of our living wage that we can all deem acceptable without a ripple effect going through the economy to everyone else? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that the minimum wage being at a historic low, there's a lot of running room between the minimum wage today and the minimum wage becoming some sort of unbelievably inflationary uh, uh, 
a policy that backfires, right? I mean, there's just a, there's a, like, the point being is even $15, I would argue, does not get us anywhere near a problem where, oh my God, we have, we have, we have you know, the, the, the minimum wage is so high that it's pushed everyone's wages so, so high up that, that, that there's now inflation to the, and, and therefore wages sort of don't the wage differences don't even really matter. So well, see, that's. The I, 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 I want to quibble with you there quickly because I spoke to somebody who specifically. I remember the number they gave me. They obviously don't live in New York or Los Angeles. Was nineteen dollars an hour that they had gone. They had apprent gone through an apprenticeship and trade school and they made nineteen dollars an hour and they could not reconcile themselves with a world where the person flipping burgers only made three or four dollars less than them per hour. So it, it it's not you're not fifteen does get you within shouting distance of tradesmen in a lot of parts of the country. I think. Well, sure, but but I would also say that a fifteen dollar minimum wage, we know this is for a fact, pushes up the wages of other workers. Mm -hmm. That, in other words, that there there will still there will still be a discrepancy. I mean, we're we're not going to get to a point where you know everyone's only you know everyone's I'm putting only, but everyone's only making tw like twenty five dollars, whether you're like a doctor or you're uh, working in McDonald's. Like, I, I don't think we're in, we're in danger of, uh, of that. But I also think there's a it's a different way of looking at the economy. And there's two two points to that, which is. Which is one. Fundamentally, do you believe people deserve to make a minimum amount of money that they can survive on, regardless of whether you're making this much more or that much more? You just have to decide, like, Okay, like maybe my wage differential in a, uh, a, a a job that needs more training is less than what I think it should be. But I think somebody working 40 hours a week needs to make a certain minimum amount of money to survive in their community. You, you have to just fundamentally believe that. Um, two, I, I actually have three points. Two, a lot of these jobs, even if they don't, um, require so-called quote skill. And I think actually a lot of quote low skill jobs actually do require a lot of skill. We don't call them skills, uh, but they are skills. I mean, if we watch people working in, in, a, in a fast food restaurant, I mean, they're moving around, they're moving fast. They got to, they got to think on their feet. They got to ring. I mean, like there's a reason why people are still doing those jobs and not machines. Now I know some of the employers want to make it machines, but the point is that there requires some real endurance and skill in those jobs. So I think we sometimes denigrate the value of that work. And by the way, even if a job doesn't take quote unquote skill, if we deem it necessary, then it has value. Doesn't matter. Like if if we need, you know, digging a you know a construction project, digging a hole may not take a ton of like you know surgical skill like a surgeon has, but it's something that we need in society, and therefore it should have value. So those are two points. And then the the you know the third point is is that we have to have a I would argue a view of an economy that is less uh, binary, uh, less. Um, uh, 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 win loss in in this way, which is to say, with less zero sum, which is to say, it's a you know it's apocryphal sort of, and it's kind of a cliche, but the 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 apocryphal story about Henry Ford setting aside his horrible anti-Semitism and you know how bad a guy he was on lots of things, but the apocryphal economic story about Henry Ford was he wanted to pay his workers a decent wage arguably a, a market leading wage beyond what maybe he necessarily needed to pay them to get them to work in the factory because his theory was at least this is the story how the story goes was that the more workers they uh, the more money they have the more ford cars they'll buy in other words we have to have a more holistic understanding of the economy that when Minimum wage workers get paid a better wage. They have more money to spend in their communities. In fact, they're the most likely to immediately spend the money in their communities. So that's economic stimulus for other service sector uh, businesses, uh, which spurs the economy. They have more money to spend uh, at in the in as customers in the very industries that they're working in. And I think we lose we we we're taught to see it as if well, I have to pay the workers better, then it means there are lower profits. It means the overhead is higher. But actually, wait a minute. If I pay people, if if the entire not just me as one business, but if the entire community's economy has to pay people uh, at the lower end of the uh, income scale more money, 
then more money will be then thus spent in the community, which will mean more customers for the businesses. It's a virtuous cycle. And I think we're, we're taught not to see it that way. And I th- and arguably it's it's sort of a little bit, it, it requires you know more than one second of thought to think about it that way. But when you think about it, it makes total sense. Okay, I want to ask you about, uh, once again, I find myself with two conflicting opinions on the issue of the revolving door. This is people being brought into the federal government more often than not to police industries that they have spent their career in. People, you know, I think most people are familiar with the concept in broad strokes. Okay, I believe it is wrong to expect that some rich guy from an industry is going to police his buddies from the same industry. He's still friends with them. He's probably still golfing with them. He'll probably be back working with them within four to eight years. At the same time, asking somebody who does not have an intimate familiarity with the industry that they're being asked to police to come in and do that job is a recipe for disaster and at the very least a recipe for the sorts of government overreach that I find right-wing messaging feasts upon. This guy's making a bunch of regulations and doesn't understand my industry at all. Also, additionally, I believe that the ideal politician in a democracy is not a career politician, but somebody who's made themselves a success in the private sector and then moves over to public service towards the end of their life. Why does that kind of person become a bad candidate if, in addition to the stuff I just described, they're also intimately familiar with the specific sector of the economy, for example, that they're now helping to govern? Well, I, I would respond to that by saying that, uh, and this is no disrespect, but I think that there's a little bit of a cliche operating there that I'm not sure always is the case, which mm-hmm. is the cliche is, you know, the academic is going to drop into the job regulating the, the, you know, some sector of the economy, and they don't have, quote, real world experience. Uh, and therefore, they're going to apply their ivory tower theories to an industry, but they're not going to really appreciate, uh, you know, ha- the, the real world realities uh, of the industry. Look, I, I think, uh, sure, there's a danger of that. Yeah. But I think, you know, the best academics are people who study, you know, like professors of finance they are supposed to be studying not just theories, but actually how finance works. Uh, And I think that when you select people uh, at the appointment level uh, to run uh, regulatory agencies, you want to, you, the idea that the only, that the best people you can select are the people inside the industries that they're working on because they have expertise. I just, I mean, they're sure. I, I will stipulate that there are some people who are like that. I will also sti- we should also stipulate that there's a huge risk that those people are going to represent an ideologically captured uh, and compliant viewpoint uh, that doesn't take into perspective, uh, take into account outside perspectives, critical perspectives of the industry, that they are so captured by the industry, they can't imagine anything other than the way, an industry has run. And that's a much, I would argue, that is a much bigger danger over the long haul than the purported benefit you're going to get from their insider knowledge. I, I I think when you're picking people to run these kinds of operations, yeah, you don't want to pick somebody who, you know, forget about real world experience for a second. You don't want to pick somebody who doesn't have an appreciation for or who hasn't studied how an industry works in the actual real world. And also, as important, I would argue even more important, you want somebody who is able to learn from input they're going to get in those jobs, uh, who knows what they don't know, who knows what questions to be asked, who knows what input to value and what input not to value. And that's kind of an intangible skill. I mean, I disagree with you in the sense that I don't think we want politicians in general, not to say that they're all, this archetype is all bad, but in general, I don't think we want politicians, um, especially at the sort of national level, if you will. I don't think we want politicians who've like never served in government, who have very little interaction with government, uh, and then you drop them into uh, governmental positions because they've had success in the private sector. Because a lot of the job of running the government is running the public sector, 
which is much different from running uh, a the missions are different, the incentives are different, the goals are different than running just a pure for-profit corporation. It's not to say that those the people from the private sector have no, nothing to add, can't be good legislators, they can. But I would I would say, and, and by the way, I sh- one more piece of nuance. I think those that archetype you've just laid out is arguably at least more appropriate for a legislature uh, as opposed to you know an ex- an executive or a regulatory agency because an executive or a regulatory agency I think what you really want in there is somebody who has good values has you know d- decent ideology uh, who can take input all this on that but who actually has spent the time in the public sector understanding how those bureaucracies actually work so they can understand oh if i you know if i change this i can i can get this result i mean we saw with trump i mean granted we disagree you know i you and I, you and i presume you and and i disagree with the values of the trump appointments but even on like a on like a functional level when he uh put in people with quote private sector experience you know at the commerce department at the at the housing and urban development and it was like a disaster because those people they not only were were their ideologies and values wrong in a lot of ways they didn't even seem to know how to what their agency even did how to run it you know which levers to pull like they had no basis in this and we have to appreciate that we call it career politician right or career bureaucrat but Learning about the public sector and how it actually works, I mean, that is real training. That is real skill. That is real institutional knowledge that is valued. And I think like, yeah, it sounds great to say, hey, we need to get like public sector in here, or private sector in here to like clean it out. And make, but like that denigrates the, the knowledge that you learn inside of those agencies with those public driven or in theory public driven missions. Let me ask you about sort of a related subject to the revolving door, and that's that's just the role of corporate influence in our body politic in the in the broadest terms. Like a minimal a minimally informed person like myself, I hear about lobbyists and I hear about corporations, and I f- forget what was the Supreme Court finding where corporations are people, and so they they have right. feelings too yep. and can give money, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, right. Um, and I hear about how they control our government, and I regard corporate influence like I regard cockroaches in new york it's a deeply lamentable problem that has always been there and will always be there i feel like i'm now being asked to look at this as a problem that has mushroomed quite a bit in recent years do you agree with that and what what specifics would you point to to demonstrate that well i i I certainly think corporate influence on politics has increased and you can see that in the amount of money that's spent in politics uh, the amount of money that is not just larger over the last 30, 40 years because of inflation, right? In terms of real dollars, uh, you know, inflation adjusted dollars, the amount of money that's flooded into elections has been uh, has exponentially increased uh, with less disclosure. You now have super PACs and dark money groups. And so so clearly corporate power over the political system has if corporate and financial power has has increased on, on that score, the number of lobbyists. I mean, I could give you all the, all those metrics. But I also think um, that on top of that, what I would call ideological capture, investing in think tanks, in, you know, corporate ownership of consolidated media, all of that creates the information architecture around our politics to basically try to predetermine even what we're allowed to discuss and debate as legitimate or not legitimate political solutions. That's all, you know, there's now this architecture around that trying to, you know, I mean, I, I wrote my first book was called Hostile Takeover. And the premise of the book of that book was basically that to be a little bit glib about it, it was basically that, you know, corporations learn that if you if you essentially buy the terms of the debate, you don't have to actually necessarily buy individual Congress people's vote, right? right? If you create two potential outcomes that are considered uh, legitimate inside of a, na- you know, you narrow the range of, of political possibilities, then you don't have to have a cash stuffed envelope for individual congressional votes because either outcome is going to be good for you. Right, right. So ideological- sorry, sorry to interrupt. I don't know if you have kids. My daughter, she's two. When she goes to bed, it's do you want to read this book or that book? Exactly. Because she has exactly. all, she has so all you, the choice in the world. She's going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you, you, so I think, you know, all the investment in ideological capture, but I also think, you know, the other thing that we talk a little bit less about, but is really important is the idea of countervailing force, which is that 
the labor movement in particular, uh, the labor movement's decline in membership and thus subsequently in political power uh, has happened at the same time of the rise in, in corporate power. And so there, there's always been corporate power, organized money. But organized money is only as powerful as uh, the gap between the power of organized money and organized people. And so when organized labor, which is a huge force for obviously organized people, uh, declines and when corporate power is successful in their very deliberate campaign to uh, decimate the labor movement, then you have corporate power like you've had in the past, but you have much less of a organized countervailing force. My view of politics is generally that political decisions are all about countervailing force. You have corporate power, you have people power, you have competing interests, uh, and what comes out of the political process is some form of expression of that uh, amalgam of power. And so when you have corporate power that has, now I'll switch into a different metaphor, has a larger piece of that pizza pie of power, and union power is a smaller piece of that pizza pie, then you're going to get more corporate policies. And that has clearly happened. And that's why I think the effort to revitalize the labor movement is so important, not just for labor union members, but for the country as a whole. We need a countervailing force to corporate power. We need a more of a balance uh, between you can, you know, here's the thing. You cannot like unions. I mean, I, I'm a you know, pro-union, pro-labor, but there are people out there, I don't like unions. I don't think they're this or that in the workplace or whatever. You cannot like unions. I would disagree with you, you but you cannot like them. And you can still say, listen, I think it's important for there to be a somewhat larger labor movement because I don't think it's good that corporations essentially are going, in a lot of ways, largely unchecked when it comes to political power for policy outcomes. Let me ask you a, another sort of esoteric question. As someone who's sort of from the left of the left, what face do you think the the left, the Democratic Party, wants to show, ideally would show the center and the right with an eye towards, you know, I can't believe we're, or I have to think about another election, but we do have to think about another election. Now, I'm not qualified to say whether or not the adoption of further left-wing policies are right or wrong for our country. I do know Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, and I'm not entirely sure Bernie would have. I perceive that right-wing fear-mongering over things like socialism and far-left identity politics are at the moment seemingly the most effective tools in right-wing messaging. I ponder a potential scenario where the Biden years are just this temporary siesta before Trump comes storming back and you have the return to the power of a, a, a cult of personality right-wing president who pretends that the storming of the Capitol with his tacit approval never happened. Basically, the question is this. How much should the far left balance its effort to achieve its, aim, its aims with Biden in the White House without jeopardizing the Democratic Party's ability to keep the White House in three years? Well, I, I, I don't see it necessarily as left or right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the, uh, uh, you know, is, is antitrust enforcement left or right? I don't, you know, I, I, whatever, you know, it, it is, um, uh, you know, I could go through a whole list of, of policies. It's not clear whether they're left or right. And I think that, that, the, that these terms are meaningless and less. What I can say is that I think there needs to be a focus on majoritarian policies that help the most people, because you're always going to have right-wing culture wars. The right-wing wants to, wants to have a, a culture war. And the best way to, I think, the most effective way to combat the right-wing culture war is to try to deliver as much material gains for working people as possible to show that, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you're going to hear the right say that the, the political left is, you know, at a step uh, with America on, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, entertainment values, pop culture, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? We have been delivering real material gains to people in their lives, like better wages, like schools are better, like healthcare costs are less, like 
so my it's a it's a long way of saying that my view is that the most successful politics are politics that deliver real material gains to people. By the way, I I find it funny that you know at the beginning of the Biden administration, some of the some you rereading some pundits in the, like the New York Times, it's like you know I, I think it was like an Ezra Klein uh, 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 column, not to pick on him, but it was like it was this whole column about how this like radicalism of if you deliver material gains for people, it might be good politics. It's like, hello, like, <laughs> welcome to like, this is what like progressives have been saying for like 30 years. It's like, let's see, like make people's lives better. And that might make them more likely to vote for you. Like, that's the whole point. And I feel like the Democratic Party has tried to avoid that point for a long time for a specific reason. In order for the vast majority of people's lives to become materially, economically better, it requires a rebalancing of the economy where the donor class and the corporate class has to give up a little bit. And if you're a democratic politician and you're trying to square a circle by saying, I can make my donors happy, and I can pass good policies that materially improve people's lives. Those two things are at odds with each other. And so by not picking a side or by picking the side of the donor class, you're not improving people's lives. And then you allow the Republicans to make culture war arguments uh, and you don't have a counter argument that you improve people's lives. And it's like all of a sudden it's like there's at least I think more of a recognition that like, hey, if we just like deliver good things to people that improve their financial situation. This could be good politics. Uh, like it's taken a long time for people in the democratic party to realize this. And there's still going to be people, you know, leaders who don't want to offend their donors. But the point is, is like, this is binary. If you're not willing to offend your donors, if you're not willing to offend a big powerful interest, then you're probably not going to deliver the things that need to be delivered. And you're going to get destroyed in elections. That was a better answer than I was expecting. That was that was actually pretty compelling. I'm not gonna lie. I like that. <laughs> um, well, I I don't want to keep you any longer. I wanted to talk to you about your book, and I never even got to your book. I sure. I enjoyed the bit that I was able to to get through. I love everything in the '80s was big, big John Stud, big. Well done. I, yep. I, I get that reference. Uh, the book is. Yep. I, I recommend people check it out if you're as interested in the '80s and its uh, popular ramifications throughout um, our society to this day. It's called Back to Our Future, How the 1980s Explained the World We Live in Now, Our Culture, Our Politics, Our Everything. And uh, for the stuff that my guest David Sirota is currently working on, he is at David Sirota, and you can find him at thedailyposter.com. Thank you ever so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 